Hello. This is the Transformation of European Politics series. My name is Tiger Bushadi, and I am a political scientist at the University of Zurich. In this podcast series, I talk to other political scientists about a publication of theirs that can help us better understand the transformation of European politics in the past 20 years. We link these academic works to broader debates within political science, but also discuss how they relate to current political developments. In this episode, I talk to Björn Bremer, who is a senior researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne. We talk about his article, The Ideational Foundations of Social Democratic Austerity in the Context of the Great Recession, which is co-authored with Sean McDaniel and was published in the Socioeconomic Review in 2019. The article investigates the economic ideas that build the bases for the decision of social democratic parties to embrace austerity policies following the economic and financial crisis in 2008. Based on over 60 semi-structured interviews with high-profile social democratic politicians in France, the UK, and Germany, the authors argued that what they call supply-side Keynesianism builds the ideational foundation for these policies. Social democratic austerity policies are thus based on a unique ideational perspective that is neither fully congruent with neoliberal or conservative perspectives, nor can it be fully explained by structural determinants. We also discuss the largely negative consequences that embracing austerity has had for social democratic parties, and the question if the economic response to the current COVID pandemic is comparable or different. If you want to know more about Björn and his research, you can follow him on Twitter under at Björn Bremer or visit his website. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Björn. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tarek. Thanks a lot for inviting me. So today we're going to talk about your 2019 article with Sean McDaniel, in which you investigate social democratic austerity politics and the macroeconomic ideas uh, that lie behind these political decisions. Before we talk about the article in more detail, I just wanted to ask you, what was the motivation for writing this article? Uh, the motivation actually uh, emerged already several years before we started this research um, jointly, um, which, is, which is also the basis for most of my PhD research, namely um, the this, this strange fact that while I started studying politics and economics in 2008 and 2009 during the financial crisis, over time, we saw a convergence of uh, political parties on uh, what ought to be done in terms of fiscal policies, right? And so what we saw is that both uh, the center-right and the center-left agreed that austerity was the dominant way forward uh, to deal with the um, increasing government de debt that had emerged as a result of the financial crisis. And I found that as somebody who at that point started studying these things, also from a historical perspective, extremely puzzling that um, this is hap had happened, that in, in the face of this large crisis, at, at that point, the largest crisis since the Great Depression, um, on the one hand, parties agreed on what should be done, more or less, and on the one hand, also that they moved forward with this, uh, this uh, idea that cutting government debt and cutting the government deficits was the most important thing that would dominate and dictate um, politics for several years. Mm -hmm. Austerity politics or austerity policies are at the core of the article. 
Can you explain to us what the core idea behind austerity policies are? Yeah, I mean, there, as we argue, or what we try to argue in the, in the article, is that actually different types of austerities and uh, ideas. Um, at one point, the article was actually called varieties of austerity. But um, what the, what we take sort of the general meaning of austerity to be is, is, is an uh, attempt to consolidate the public finances, um, either by cutting government spending or increasing taxes um, in, in, in times of economic crisis or in times of economic hardship. Um, because at times of economic crisis, uh, you cannot grow out of a, a government debt, government debt being a, a ratio of usually as a government debt in respect to, to GDP. And governments often argue that they need to make tough choices by either raising uh, taxes or cutting spending. Mm -hmm. And then you discuss this idea specifically as a response to the Great Recession, so the big economic and financial crisis uh, in 2008. Why in that period did people look at austerity and thought this was a necessary instrument? Well, I think that there were two different periods when it comes to the Great Recession that, um, with regards to fiscal policies that are, that are worthwhile uh, distinguishing. Right? On the one hand, in the beginning, in response to the financial crisis, governments actually um, implemented stimulus programs. They bailed out the banking sector and spent a lot of money um, in order to prevent the financial crisis um, from turning into another Great Depression. And arguably, they did this uh, very successfully. But what this also meant is that in the process, much like today, governments were actually accumulating a large amount of government debt. And they took on responsibilities for saving banks, the financial sector, but also um, from providing stimulus to keep economic activity on a high level in response to this immediate crisis. Um, that then left them with this, with this high debt burden to deal with um, afterwards. And this, this debt burden, of course, especially became politicized um, in, in, in 2009 and 2010 when the Greek crisis emerged. So when it became clear that actually Greece um, had a much higher deficit than previously thought, and as a result, uh, government, the government itself, um, but also financial markets, thought that it was necessary for, for Greece to do something about this government debt because it was not sustainable anymore. And so in the, in, in the wake of this Greek crisis, uh, governments across the world, especially in the advanced economies, became concerned about their own level of government debt. They also became concerned that they could become um, uh, targets of the financial markets, that they could at some point might not be able to, to refinance the government debt. And so we saw this turn from fiscal stimulus towards austerity in 2010. You hinted at it a little bit already, but can you explain a little more why that is such a problem? I mean, it depends who you ask, uh, whether uh, people think that that is a problem or not. Um, and that is also, of course, part of, of what uh, in the article where we argue that social democrats think that that is a problem for other reasons than, than for example, um, center-right or conservative parties. Now, I, of course, the, the overarching um, problem with, with government debt is that it's not necessarily the level of government debt that a government has, but rather it is the cost that the government pays in order to uh, finance this government debt. So government debt has to, uh, government has to pay interest on its debt, 
Um, and this interest at a pace um, needs to be financed either uh, mostly through, through taxation. And if the government debt is high, mean, and also the interest that the government has to pay on its debt is, is very high, um, that means that uh, it, on the one hand, needs the capacity to, to raise money to, to finance it and to refinance it, but it also will take away resources from other areas that the government may want to spend money on. So social services, uh, public goods provision, infrastructure investment, and so on and so forth. And so as a result of it, a lot of people have worried um, that by having a huge, large amount of government debt and by having to pay a lot of interest on a government debt, this also undermines the capacity of states to act elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So the starting point for the article is that, as you already outlined, it should be somewhat surprising that social democratic parties or social democratic politicians embrace austerity. If we take one sec step back, why is it not surprising for conservative or liberal parties to follow these strategies? That's, that's a good question. Be, because, it, of course, by a lot of people nowadays, also with regard to the, to the last 10 years, argue that actually austerity um, does economic harm. And no party, certainly not the center-right, uh, uh, but also liberal parties, want to... Uh, do anything that hurts the economy and hurts the business interest. But I think there's, there are other arguments why these parties uh, traditionally have been much more associated with fiscally cons uh, conservative uh, policies or fiscal orthodoxy. And, and that, on the one hand, is, is of course their belief in, in small governments. They don't actually, ha they have, don't have an interest in, in, in big governments. In, in governments that raise a lot of re uh, revenues through taxation or other means, and that they then spend this money um, uh, in the economy. Uh, but on the other hand, and this is more an economic reason, these parties are also associated much more with uh, ideas that the free markets and free mar markets uh, um, on them and on their own can much better achieve economic outcomes than uh, center-left parties. Right? They believe in, 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 in a set of economic ideas that became especially dominant towards the end of the 20th century uh, that uh, governments uh, uh, should really step back, let the markets operate to their own devices. And as a result of it, they, they find it much easier to also cut uh, public services, cut um, government, other types of government spending and, 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 let the, and let the markets do their work um, in order to, to get uh, outcomes that they, these parties uh, deem preferable. Mm -hmm. In the article, then, you provide some, what you discuss, some general explanations for why social democracy turned to austerity. Um, and you discuss these explanations um, to then also criticize them. Can you outline these more general explanations for social democratic austerity politics? In, in the article, we, we mostly engage with sort of structural explanations for social democratic austerity. And these structural explanations um, argue that uh, social democrats uh, and other left-wing parties have really been constrained by large structural transformations in, in the last few decades, and most importantly, by globalization. So the idea here is that actually um, globalization um, 
and especially the free move movement of capital um, undermines government's autonomy to intervene in the economy and especially undermines the ability of governments to, to pursue um, Keynesian fiscal policies that had been dominant in the post-war pe uh, uh, post period. And because capitalists, by, by being mobile and moving across the, the globe, they will essentially um, uh, uh, dictate to governments what should be the preferable policies rather than governments having the autonomy to decide what, what ought to be done in different instances. Um, one extreme version of course, this argument is, of course, um, uh, the influence of European integration. Um, a lot of people have described the European integration, and probably rightly so, as sort of an economic liberal project uh, that has undermined the ability of states to intervene in their economy. Um, and so in, when we saw also what we saw during the crisis, of course, was that actually the EU itself and different actors in, in, within the EU were um, very much involved in pushing the austerity agenda. So these are, um, here we're talking about not only the European Commission, but also the European Central Bank and, and, and other actors that eventually made up the, the Troika. You, made, you mentioned Keynesian economics and they play an important role as a reference point for your article. Can you very briefly say what the main ideas of Keynesian economics are? I think Keynesian economics, uh, uh, to summarize that briefly, is very difficult, also because there are now very different streams of Keynesian economics by now. But I, I, I think overall, the, the overarching idea is that is that, that, that Keynes had, and not only Keynes, but other economists, economists around that time and writing in the 1930s, was that the government has a responsibility to, uh, and, and an important role to intervene on the, in the economy and to create demand and when other actors are not willing to, and other, so private actors mostly, households and firms are not willing or not able to create this demand. So in terms of economic crises, what Keynes argued is, is that actually governments needed to, um, while everybody else was deleveraging, governments needed to, to spend money um, and use also at the same time expansionary monetary policies, so make money available uh, cheaply in, in order to, to um, smoothen the business cycle. So to, in order to prevent economic crises from being coming too deep. Mm -hmm. Next to these structural explanations, or maybe, maybe as, a, as a result of these uh, structural determinants, you also discuss a perspective on the change of social democratic policies that regards them as just driven by neoliberalism or order liberalism. Why do you think that is not the best uh, way of explaining their policy choices? When I when I sat down with these policymakers and um, for my for my PhD research and the interviews that also then made up a lot of the empirical material for this, this article, and I often was struck by the fact that these people that I had criticized uh, as a student, that others had criticized um, as well, uh, were talking actually very differently than I had expected them to talk. They were justifying their policies very differently than I had uh, expected them to justify it. And, and it, it struck me that actually there's a 
the way they talked about the economy and the way they talked about the responsibility of governments in the economy was very different from what um, sort of the classical new liberal arguments or order liberal arguments would be. And so I, I realized while doing these interviews and while talking to these policymakers actually, um, or, um, but also um, already while engaging with a lot of the material that they had uh, published and that they um, elsewhere, I actually realized that there was often a lot of uh, room for misunderstandings when you um, claim when when we we considered them to be neoliberals or other liberals. Um, what we really wanted to make sure is that actually, um, even though you might disagree with the ideas that the social democrats um, had, and I certainly do disagree with much of them, I think it's very important that we take these ideas at face value and engage with them in order to really also have this conversation um, uh, uh, why certain policies were uh, implemented and what the problems were with certain policies. And if you, if we don't accept that there are what we call these varieties of different ideas out there, um, that uh, in the end got social democrats to the same place that, that that other parties got to. But given that the starting point was very different, I think we you need that's something that we thought would be very important to recognize and 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 in order to understand what really drove social democratic parties in this moment of crisis. Mm -hmm. So if we assume that there motivation was just neoliberal ideas, then maybe we also will use the wrong ways of um, addressing this turn when we're critical with it. Exactly. In the article, then, you introduce the idea of supply-side Keynesianism as a, a bundle of macroeconomic ideas that you saw as driving social democrats' decisions. Can you explain supply-side Keynesianism to me? Mm -hmm. I mean, supply-side Keynesianism is a term that we, we introduced here, and um, but it is essentially um, uh, the, the, uh, a combination of different economic ideas that became mainstream um, and entered mainstream economics towards the end of the 20th century. And these are different, it's, it's three different ideas that we talked about in, in, in the book. On the one hand, it's New Keynesian economics. New Keynesian economics is a, is a synthesis um, of classical, neoclassical and Keynesian ideas. Essentially, what these New Keynesian economists um, did is that they accepted that on, uh, economic agents are rational. Um, and by accepting that economic agents are rational, they also accepted that um, uh, government, especially in the long run, economic markets would be self-correcting. But they introduced the idea that actually there, there were some rigidities in markets. So, for example, prices and wages are sticky. And by virtue of them being sticky, actually new Keynesians were able to justify that in the short run, there was still room for government intervention. And um, in the short run, in order to, because of these rigidities, governments still um, uh, needed to address what was, was often called the output gap in the economy in order to make sure that economies are not performing beneath, below their potential. So that, that's one idea uh, that was part of supply-side Keynesianism. The other idea um, is that actually, given that now new Keynesian economists have accepted that long-run growth is really not, cannot be influenced by governments and is driven purely by market factors, um, at least on the demand side, they came up with and they bought into um, new endogenous growth theory, which essentially argued that governments could, by intervening on the supply side of the economy, so by investing in human and physical capital, um, by improving productivity, 
this, they could still improve economic growth in the long run. So they couldn't do this by just creating demand themselves, but they could do this by, by in, in investing in the potential um, of the economy in order to uh, improve the long run trajectory of different economies. So that's, that's, uh, that's the second idea that was very important for this. So, and it's the supply side part of, of, of the Keynesian idea that featured um, within this, this overall um, arching paradigm that social democrats um, used in order to justify what they, what they were doing. When did social Demo democrats get to these ideas? And I know there's not a precise date, but how do these ideas differ from what would have been social democratic policy positions maybe in the 1960s or 1980s? Mm -hmm. I mean, for social democrats, this was a, a process over several decades. And so you're right that it's difficult to pinpoint an exact time. And certainly also there were differences across different countries. But I mean, what happened is that in the, in the 1970s, Uh, when on first Bretton Woods, uh, the Bretton Woods system broke down, but then also you had um, sustained economic crises um, as uh, caused by supply side shocks, so uh, the oil shocks, for example, and um, this led to a, a paradigm change in economic policy making, and it led to the shift away from Keynesian policies towards um, uh, the, the monetarist paradigm, or later on, sort of a synthesis of these different. Um, uh, economic ideas. And I think social democrats struggled a lot in response to this eco economic crisis in the 70s. Um, and others have, have written about this, like, like Mark Blythe, for example, about how this paradigm change came about. But uh, for social democrats, um, this was a soul-searching soul moment. Um, and here also, for example, work by Fritz Scharpf, Is, is very interesting in, 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 because it illuminates how social democrats were really struggling um, in order to find new ways of dealing with the economy and engaging with the economic um, uh, problem of creating growth in the long run. And so, especially what's an important moment here that often people reference is Mitterrand's um, attempt as a first socialist president in France, he actually tried to go against this dominant paradigm of the time that Keynesian policies were dead and still um, Uh, tried to implement them, and within a year or so, he had to uh, concede defeat and also embarked on, on a more or less similar uh, economic program as other countries and other governments of the, of the time. So it really is sort of this time period of the, the late 70s, the, the 80s, into the early 90s, where social democrats um, were on, in this process of searching for new economic ideas. And, and they turned to supply-side Keynesianism as part of the third way then, mostly in the early 90s, mid-90s, um, in order to resolve their, also their internal tensions in, in the face of this dominant new economic paradigm. Mm -hmm. In the article then, you provide empirical evidence for this paradigm shift. What evidence did you collect for the article? Um, so for the article, uh, Sean, my co-author, and I both did um, a, a large amount of interviews. And we did, I think, around 60 elite interviews in, in, in three countries that we argue are crucial um, countries to know to understand what happened, namely France, Germany, and the UK. Um, but we also used a lot of se uh, secondary and primary material 
um, other sources that we had gathered for our respective PhD research um, in order to to build this case that this paradigm shift and these economic ideas that social democratic parties adopted uh, in the wake of um, uh, in the wake of this this shift in the towards the end of the uh, ninth. Uh, the 20th century, that this really played a key role also in how they addressed the, the Great Recession. Can you tell me a little more about these interviews? How did that go? Uh, what did that feel like? I mean, these uh, these interviews were both on the one hand uh, pretty scary for me as a, as a young PhD researcher, but also on the other hand, of course, a huge opportunity um, uh, because I, I, I had the chance to talk to a lot of people who had gathered a huge amount uh, of experience of being in government as part of the, for example, the third way. So, for example, Alistair Darling in the UK who was a, a chancellor under Gordon Brown uh, was someone who took time and talked to me. But also other uh, similar uh, leaders in, in, in the UK and in Germany where I did most of the, most, most of my interviews. Um, uh, it was quite, quite a unique opportunity for me to actually go and and figure out as somebody who had actually who had not been trained in qualitative research, but who had somebody who had been trained as, as a quantitative researcher mostly, to to figure to actually figure out talk to some of the people that we study usually um, as political scientists. And so on the one hand, I, I didn't know what I was doing in, in many instances, and I was uh, in a way as nervous as I'm right now when talking to these political leaders. But on the other hand, I also realized that this was an amazing opportunity. To, to get to talk to some people who had also been involved in, in making history. I would say that in comparative political economy, talking to politicians is not a method that I have seen a lot in order to build an empirical case. What would you say are the advantages of that method? Mm -hmm. I think it depends a lot on, on uh, what, when you, what, you define as political economy and what time period you look at. I think so people uh, in, in the last century or so who have considered themselves political economists probably did this much more than what pe we are doing nowadays um, talking to, to politicians. Uh, I mean, I think the advantages are that on the one hand, you can uh, really get exposure to the actors that we study and you really get a chance to confront them with your theoretical ideas and, and get feedback from them based on, on whether these theoretical ideas actually make any sense, whether there's leverage in them when it comes to the day-to-day policymaking. Um, and so I think it gives uh, us as researchers a, 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 large, a big opportunity to, to also learn from, from practitioners by doing these interviews. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, they, they help to address re some research questions uh, that cannot be addressed, for example, with quantitative methods. Um, they can often allow you to get at some mechanisms that are just if you just collect data in other ways cannot be unearthed. And so I think um, this is also what I did for my thesis of combining these qualitative this qualitative evidence from, from interviews with for other data, it can often be hugely illuminating in a, in a mixed message research design. But what also has to be said, of course, is that there are big uh, drawbacks to doing interviews, right? I mean, often the question is whether you can, can you take it, what politicians say at face value? Um, to, to what extent are they really being honest and open with you when you have uh, your recording on? 
and 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 they are of course as politicians especially much more than other elite actors maybe very careful about what they say so i think what's really important is when you especially when you talk to politicians who are maybe still even active as politicians who are concerned about how what they say even to an academic is perceived um uh, on political terms i think it's very important that you triangulate the, the evidence that you gather from uh, these interviews with other kind of evidence. And that's what we try to do in this article. That was one thing I was wondering about. So the fact that politicians are usually so concerned with constructing a narrative for what they do and then selling this narrative to voters, that I was wondering how much this is still active, this narrative construction uh, when you interview them. Did you encounter much of this during your interviews? I encountered some of it, but I think it depends a lot on who you're talking to. Right? And so if you, I mean, if you go through the list of people that we interviewed, there were some people who uh, were uh, still active politicians. So they were still either um, running for office or ha holding some office, but there were also a lot of people who were retired um, there were a lot of people who were never actually on the front line as politicians themselves, but more, much uh, more so operating in the background as policy advisors. And I think and when you, you encounter the narrative construction, mostly with regards to the first group, those people that are still um, active as politicians who are still seeking uh, um, office and are still running in elections, because these people, and probably rightly so, are very concerned about how... Um, what they say is constructed uh, elsewhere. So what happened in these instances often was that uh, um, people wanted to to see all the quotes that I got, got from the from the interviews. That they wanted to be. They were much more careful also doing the interview. What they said. Sometimes they even asked me to turn off the tape recorder when they wanted to uh, say something that uh, was was supposed to be off the record. And so I think the interaction with these politicians it was often very different than with the other elite actors. Um, but I, I think given the fact that so these different groups often also said the same thing, made me confident that this narrative construction didn't um, overshadow everything else that, uh, that we then based our, our findings on for this article. You empirically investigated, uh, or you did your interviews in three countries, in France, the UK, and in Germany. What would you say were the biggest commonalities and what were the biggest differences in um, social democratic reasoning in these countries? I mean, that's a, that's a good question because in the, in the article we highlight explicitly that different elements of, of these economic ideas that social democratic parties drew on were prominent to different degrees in, in these different um, countries. I mean, what's certainly played a role in terms of the differences, of course, is that also um, there were different patterns of being in government and being in opposition in these different uh, different countries, which certainly influenced um, uh, how um, how economic ideas also influenced what the policymakers did. Um, with regards to, for example, uh, the difference between the UK and, and, and Germany, I think what's very clear is that in, in the UK, um, economic, these economic ideas that we described were probably um, evident in the most cleanest and clearest form. Um, and that was also, that was partly also because the third way, of course, uh, to a certain extent originated in the UK, was also pro present in the most uh, clearest form in the, in the UK. But it's also because a lot of the way that, so, um, 
recruitment happened in the Labour Party under, under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, it often was that you had people coming straight out of training as um, academic training as economists into um, government positions or mo mostly actually in policy advisor position as policy advisors, that these ideas were um, very visible in its pure form. In, in Germany, for example, uh, that was also the, the case. We argue that the ideas also played a role, but I think in Germany also the electoral considerations um, this con concern with what we call what's often called in Germany the Swabian housewife and those were also certainly extremely prominent in, in a German case um, and 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 therefore influencing a little bit how these ideas were med mediated in, in, in and, and influenced political decisions and political actions. The case of France is, is yet again different because what you have to remember is that in, in the UK and in Germany, social democrats were actually in government when the financial crisis happened. They were in government in 2008 and then they were voted out of government in Germany in 2009 and in the UK in, in 2010. In, in France, that was not the case. And so actually, um, François Hollande, who was elected as a socialist president, he was actually elected on a strange platform where he promised to be an anti-austerity candidate, at least austerity as, as it had been known under um, Sarkozy, the previous president. But at the same time, he also promised uh, budgetary discipline and he promised um, to pursue political consolidation. So there was this contradiction that was also present in Mitterrand's uh, program in the 1980s, was also very much prominent uh, prominent in the French program, and so when it comes to the ideas, uh, social uh, the socialists in in France had to use a lot of these economic ideas to to resolve these contradictions, and th th this also changed over the period of of the the five years in which uh, Hollande was in government. Mm -hmm. You mentioned for Germany the narrative of the Swabian housewife, and this is something I was reminded of a lot when reading the article. Can you elaborate a little bit uh, this very, I would argue, successful mainstream right narrative of the Swabian housewife that Angela Merkel introduced? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. This is a. I think it was a brilliant political move from the the center right, not only in Germany but certainly in a very extreme form in Germany. Was was to argue that actually um, governments cannot live live beyond their means, much like a private household. So this analogy of um, uh, the individual household, the individual experience of voters of their financial uh, situation with the government situation is of course completely false, but it's, it's one that allowed the government to sell austerity as a moral policy, uh, both in Germany, but also later on across Europe when it came to um, this austerity turn within the European Union in, in 2010 to, until 2012. I mean, it, it was a brilliant political move because it meant that as soon as the um, crisis what became seen as a sovereign debt crisis, as soon as this financial crisis was turned into fiscal crisis of the state, the conservatives who had been using this metaphor, um, not only during the crisis, but also uh, beforehand already, were perceived as the ones who were most uh, credibly able to deal with this crisis. 
And as soon as this happened, this public discourse put the, the social democrats and, and other left-wing parties in the defensive that they had to justify how and whether their programs were actually fiscally credible, whether they had the economic competence to deal with this in the light of the sort of uh, increasing concerns about the government debt. We've now established how or based on which macroeconomic ideas and paradigms social democrats did get to these solutions and did uh, why they embraced certain aspects of austerity policies. If we now talk a little bit more about the consequences, what would you say were the consequences for the economy, for society of social Democrats embracing these ideas? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I studied economics, but I'm not an, uh, an economist, right? So I think there's other people who know much more about the, the um, the consequences of austerity for the economy and to a certain extent that's also contested but I think that also mainstream economics has increasingly also with, ever, with regards to the evidence that we've seen in the last, from the last decade shifted to an um, understanding that actually austerity is more detrimental to uh, the performance of economies than, it, than people had thought before the crisis. Before the crisis, the, and also then during the crisis, as hugely influential economists had often argued that actually cutting government debt is very important also to ensure that the prosperity of economies become beyond, because beyond a certain threshold of government debt, and there will be a lack on growth. And actually, I think what we've seen is during this crisis that actually austerity policies themselves were this drag on growth. And we have seen that by taking demand out of the economy, which governments had, had did by cutting spending or raising taxes, this uh, creates a, a, a drag on, on growth and also contributes um, to contributed to this long secular stagnation that we see not only in Europe but also elsewhere. Um, because, and I think this is very important, because because economists now accept that actually the multiplier effect of government spending, so the fact that when government spends on, um, uh, on for example, an investment project, that money that they spend on investment pro uh, an investment product, uh, pro project also leads to increasing private economic activity that these multiplier effects are larger than people had assumed before the crisis, I think is something that is now commonly accepted and understood in, as economists. For the, the consequences of austerity for society at large, of course, much broader though than just the, the question of whether or not this austerity had a, a detrimental effect on growth. Um, because we have seen that, especially in countries where austerity was implemented in its most extreme form, so for example, in, in the countries in Southern Europe, like uh, Greece and Spain and Portugal, and these countries, of course, um, uh, the social impacts were much greater than just the question of whether or not uh, these countries would return to growth within a couple of years or within, a couple, within only a decade. Because what we've seen in these countries is, of course, a huge amount of unemployment, especially youth unemployment. We've seen a lot of loss of economic capacity, a lot of economic productivities. Certain sectors have, have gone as a result also of these austerity policies. So I think it depends a lot on where you're talking about. But uh, um, these, these austerity policies have had detrimental impacts, at least in some countries. Mm -hmm. I also had Tom O'Grady on the podcast who outlined how in the UK, uh, a decade of austerity policies has really 
devastated the uh, the welfare state and its basic functions. Now, if we shift to social democratic parties, what would you say were the consequences for them? I mean, I think the, the consequences of austerity for social democratic parties are, um, are in my view, also very extremely devastating. I mean, I, I think Tom is completely right that um, by virtue of austerity actually attacking the welfare state, something that social democrats had had built for decades and had then protected for decades, even in, against so in, 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 the, in the late 20th century, when they may not, might not have been in government, when other economic ideas were dominant. Even in this context, social democrats always defended this. But in the crisis, because of the depth of austerity, uh, this became, for the first time, really under threatened and undermined. This had detrimental consequences also for, for the way social democratic parties were perceived so especially in countries where they implemented austerity, but also in countries like uh, like the UK, um, where they didn't implement austerity, but for a long time didn't have a clear policy on austerity or supported austerity. I think in these countries, social democratic parties lost much of their original uh, brand recognition. Because austerity went against the welfare state, it also meant that social democrats um, had these contradictions within their programmatic platforms that were very difficult for them to resolve and that also in the, the eyes of the voters, of course, undermined what social democracy had stood for um, in the previous decades. Mm -hmm. You also investigated these consequences empirically, right? So I, I found that these these uh, uh, social, these policies are detrimental. So you, I, you, I find that in, in, in research, um, that is not, of course, in this article, but elsewhere, I find that social democratic parties are losing from implementing austerity policies. Um, and uh, they're losing for different reasons. And this is something that still needs to be uh, um, investigated much better. But there are two different mechanisms why social democratic parties might be losing from austerity policies. On the one hand, it might be that by converging uh, with center-right center parties and conservative parties, and they're really turning fiscal consolidation into a balance issue, where competition is not only about not not anymore about programmatic differences, but it's really about who is better at cutting uh, government debt and cutting the government deficit. And that's something that, in my view, uh, that's a game that social democratic parties cannot win, because they have been always on the defensive about this, and by co just copying the positions of the the center right, and um, they don't give centrist voters. Who, who might be between these two different camps, the center-left and the center-right, they don't give, a, give them a very good reasons to, to vote for them. So on the one hand, social democratic parties may essentially be losing uh, centrist voters to the uh, center-right by accepting austerity. But the second mechanism is, of course, that, and that certainly happened in countries where, where austerity had the biggest effect, um, is that it antagonizes left-wing voters, often the core voters of social democratic parties, who exactly because of this um, attack on the welfare state feel like social democratic parties don't represent them, them anymore, they become demobilized. So they either on the one hand may not vote anymore, they abstain in elections, or they might also turn to more radical parties on the left um, in their search for an alternative that, uh, that rallies their opposition towards austerity. And so I think it's still an empirical 
question, which of these mechanisms is really the driving factor, which one of these empirical mechanisms dominates. And I think there are, there are differences um, across different countries uh, here, certainly. But I think that also often these two mechanisms are actually um, happening at the same time. And especially in countries where these two mechanisms are, uh, um, are happening at the same time, social democratic parties are actually um, not only losing, but they're uh, they're, they're, they're losing big time. So, for example, you can think about Greece, where this has happened, but you can also think about France, where after um, Hollande's tenure as president, the, social, the Socialist Party lost in the elections, on the one hand, to a centrist uh, candidate, Nami Macron, who, based on his experience and based on his background, was able to say, look, I can govern the economy much more competently than any of the socialists can. And at the same time, they were losing to the, the far left can, peop, uh, uh, candidates, far left parties like Mélenchon's movement, um, who were actually then rallying this opposition towards austerity that socialist, the socialists had implemented while themselves, they themselves were in government. <clears throat> we are now, of course, uh, living through another big crisis that is also an economic crisis. And of course, again, um, Governments have been, I don't want to say piling up debt because that's exactly in the austerity paradigm, but, uh, but uh, where governments have accumulated um, quite a lot of debt in, uh, within the last year. It seemed to me that uh, the paradigms and the approaches to this economic crisis, however, have changed and are different than they were before. Would you agree with this assessment? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think as I, as I highlighted already is that, of course, in 2008 and 2009, things also looked different, right? In those initial years in response to the financial crisis, governments actually also did something that is similar to what they were doing now, of course, on a different scale and with different folk, with a different focus. But at that point, governments were also intervening in the economy and pursuing this, what Peter Hall called emergency Keynesianism. Right. They didn't do this based on this sort of Keynesian economic paradigm because that had been gone, but they did this based on the intuition that um, governments really in the short run needed to intervene in order to prevent the financial crisis from turning into a real uh, depression like it had happened in the 1930s. And so this, at least sort of on the... Uh, on the face value doesn't look so different from governments what, what, from what governments are doing right now. Um, namely, again, intervening in the economy and protecting and, and bailing out many more sectors than maybe in 2008 and 2009 be due to the health restrictions um, and, and being essentially the, the spender of last resort, right? When nobody else is, is spending, when there's no demand not coming from anywhere else, the governments are uh, stepping in right now in, in order to also protect the pro, uh, productive capacity. But you're right, of course, that at, the, at least at the moment, um, the way we, we talk about government interventions and, and governments, uh, uh, the role of government is quite different from what it was um, at least in, in the last decade before this crisis. And the question is, of course, whether this is something that it will last or not. And I think at least from the right, um, there's, there's signs already that there's a, a counter movement again happening, that people are becoming about, uh, concerned about uh, the, the, the government debt that is now accumulating, that people are using, again, similar 
political and economic rhetoric as they did in 2009, 2010, when the shift in, in, after the last crisis happened towards austerity. So I think it's still an open question whether or not we will see a return of austerity. What is clear, though, is that economics as a discipline, and this goes back to sort of the, the, the importance of economic ideas, economics as a discipline has moved on, and economics as a discipline has also learned a lot from, from the last crisis. Um, of course, there, as mainstream economics uh, is still criticized heavily by, by some um, heterodox economists, but I think it's fair to say that um, there is uh, an overwhelming uh, acceptance among most mainstream economists that governments can do uh, more than what they had thought before the last crisis and they can also accept and uh, accept higher government debt uh, than what people had thought in 2010 for example and that's partly based on on, on not not only on, on their economic thinking that has evolved, but also the economic circumstance that we're having today. And it's especially the fact that we're living in an environment where interest rates are extremely low. And so, even though governments have uh, are piling up, as you as you said it, um, gov additional government debt, the financing cost of this government debt is actually not that high compared to what historically we've seen. And so I think from from a perspective of many economists, the concerns about uh, the sustainability of public finances and public debt is, is not as large as it was in, in 2009, 2010, when this turn toward austerity happened. And this makes me confident that maybe we won't be seeing this return of austerity. But the question is whether really this is what will drive politicians or whether there's actually other f uh, factors that will drive politicians and their reactions to this, this uh, increase in government debt that we're seeing. And would you say that these changes in economics as a discipline and maybe in economic paradigms are reflected, are visible in politicians' arguments and actions. And one specific case I'm thinking about is the German finance ministry, uh, which, of course, with especially Wolfgang Schäuble, is very much associated um, with austerity, with uh, enforcing austerity all across uh, the Eurozone. And Per Steinbrück, as a social democratic finance minister, wasn't so different from this, it, it seems to me at least. Uh, would you say there's been a, a change uh, in, in these approaches and also maybe based on a change in economic thinking? Hmm. I mean, I think you're completely right that within uh, the finance ministry for a long time, it didn't really seem to matter in Germany who was leading the ministry. I mean, you already mentioned Per Steinberg, and it's very important to remember that, of course, under Per Steinberg, um, uh, the, the, the debt break, the Schuldenbremse, was passed. So when he was finance minister, the, uh, the grand coalition between the CDU and the SPD uh, agreed on this debt break, which uh, has now, in, in, which now has an impact in the sense that it, infor it informs also discussion about what should be done with this government debt or not, whether it's okay to accumulate this government debt or not. Um, so that's that's of course a, a very important point, and it also applies to a certain extent to the first two years of Olaf Scholz as a finance minister. Because you have to remember that Olaf Scholz, who is the finance minister now and who is the SPD politician as well, that he um, was reluctant to break away with this dogma of the the balanced budget, the Schwarze Null, as it's called in Germany, the Black Zero. Um, but I think for Olaf Scholz, that was mostly uh, 
he, he did this mostly because of for political reasons. He didn't want to be seen as the finance minister who uh, did away with this policy, which politicians in Germany by and large all assume is a popular policy. At least it was a popular policy from in the in the time period before uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. And so I I think he didn't see a way for him to get rid of this policy without also harming his own economic competence as perceived by the voters, as well as the economic competence of maybe the social democrats at large in Germany. And, and I, but I think no, there's, there's evidence that sort of what the finance ministry is doing now is informed by new economic ideas. There's a new generation of German economists who, who are um, having a lot of uh, exchanges with the finance ministry who are also in the public discourse and um, more and more influential and who are essentially telling the fi German finance ministry um, and also Olaf Scholz himself personally that this is not such a big problem. So I, I do see that there's evidence there that um, changing economic ideas also have a, a change in, um, in the policy output that we've been seeing in the last few months. But again, I think there might be political factors that will come in and obstruct and obscure the way these economic ideas feed into economic policy. And that's still very much open and, uh, and, and uncertain whether or not and to what extent this will happen. One, if I may, one other point that I would, would make here, though, is that uh, especially going forward, it's, assuming that the center-right at some point will again sort of make arguments for austerity, will again uh, push for fiscal consolidation, it's not sure when they will do this, whether it will happen already next year or the year afterwards or only the year afterwards. How patient these people, politicians um, from the center-right will be, I have no idea. But the question is, how will social democrats uh, pre um, position themselves in, against this is actually one that needs to be uh, added with another question, namely how will other left-wing parties position themselves against this, right? Because given the fact that social democrats have now been losing nearly everywhere in Europe and have been losing to the extent that they've been, they're much weaker force than they were actually in, in, at the beginning of the century. I think it will not only come down to social democrats anymore and their positions on austerity um, or fiscal policy in general, but it will also come down to the positions of other left-wing parties and um, whether or not austerity will win again and will become the dominant policy or not. Bjorn, we're already coming to an end of the podcast. There's one question that I always ask the guests on the podcast, and that is uh, for reading recommendations. One piece of political science and one piece that's not political science, maybe even a piece of fiction. I thought about this for, for a while because I knew you were going to ask this question. Um, and I think the, the academic recommendation is much, is, is much easier. I, I, here I would um, recommend Sherry Berman's first book, The Social Democratic Moment, Ideas and Politics in the Making of Interwar Europe. Because I think as a political scientists, we often should actually take historical work more seriously. And, and Sherry Berman does this in a, a, 
in a brilliant way in, in this book, where she examines the different choices that social democratic parties made in the interwar period, especially in the context of the Great Depression in Sweden and in, in Germany. And she shows quite uh, in a very eloquent uh, way that actually um, the different programmatic positions that these social democratic parties had in these two countries informed um, how they responded to the Great Depression, how they were able to, in Sweden on the one hand, to really build this sort of a Keynesian argument for um, government intervention, for a strong state, um, and therefore also then build a coalition with other actors in order to make this happen. Whereas in Germany, because of different programmatic ideas that these parties had, and the SPD really failed at this this task. They actually in the end supported Brüning's austerity policies, much like they did in the last crisis. Um, and as a result of it, also then contributed to the fact that other actors, and in Germany, especially the, the Nazi party, of course, were able to fill in the void and, and, and as a much bolder and more skillful political actor, um, uh, take, take charge. And so I, I think by, by reading this book and I rereading it, and I've done this recently, I think we, we do get a very stimulating perspective on the role of how politics um, determines how crises play out and how they turn out and how this is all also implemented, in, impacted by the role of different economic ideas. And then with regards to the non-academic book, I, I had much more difficulty because I, I probably have 10 books on my bedside table, most, most of which I could recommend. But I actually decided to go with a, a German book that has been a, very well known and acclaimed in Germany from Zada Stanitschew called Herkunft. Um, which I think has been translated and will soon be available in English as a book called, as, as Where You Come From. And this is um, an autobiographic book by um, Zaza Stanitschus, who has um, immigrated to Germany in the early 90s with his uh, parents um, as he, while he, when they were fleeing from the Balkan War. And on a personal level, this book was highly interesting because my partner herself is, a, is, an, is an immigrant who grew up in Germany in the 1990s. And so reading this book has sort of made me uh, rethink the different perspectives and different experiences that we had as children. It made me ask her a lot of different questions. And it also made me reflect very much on my own privilege. But I think also for people, not only German listeners who might have already read the book, but also other listeners outside of Germany, this is an interesting book because it provides a, a perspective on a changing Germany, a Germany where a large amount of people now uh, have an immigrant background, even though the country still has a problem to consider itself as an immigrant country. And I think it's very important that in order to understand contemporary Germany, and this is of course very off topic from what we've been talking to about, but I think in order to understand contemporary Germany, we need to listen much more to the experiences of these people. And so I think it's a, it's a highly interesting read uh, and of a, a beautifully written book that I can recommend to anyone. Great. Thank you so much, Bjorn. Thanks for this really interesting conversation. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much, Tarek. And thanks also, not only for inviting me, but for putting on this podcast series. I think I've learned a huge amount from listening to them in the last few months. And I'm very honored that you thought other people would learn a little bit from listening to us in this conversation. So thanks a lot. <laughs>